If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App. And that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you? Hope you're well. I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. Are you getting excited for summer? I'm trying to. I'm just trying to get past the organizing of all the logistics for my kids. I'm a bit embarrassed to admit that I engaged in a full-on complaining session with another parent at my daughter's school yesterday about how much I have going on and all the responsibilities I have and all the all the activities I have to get them to and from. And uh, almost immediately afterward, in fact, before we finished talking, I think I started to feel rotten. I could feel it gnawing at me. And now granted, I was just recovering from three hours in a dentist chair, but I can't really use that excuse because this is something that I see as a pattern for myself. That it's something I do from time to time that I make a habit of this complaining. And uh, I, I, I try not to uh, complain about the choices that I've made and the responsibilities I fully ex- accept to be mine. And the venting just seems to happen at times. And I, I know I do it because I, I need the acknowledgement perhaps of somebody else who's not my partner or my friend. It just verifies that sometimes our life is not our own, that it's a slog, and there seem to be too few breaks from all the demand. But hey, you know, I have I have children, and I've chosen to do this, and I can't count on them appreciating uh, me for everything I'd like to be appreciated for. And I feel like I get just enough to keep me going for all the effort that it takes and you know usually when we're on vacation is when i start to get back some of that some of the feedback for for all of it because they're getting the attention they need and that they that they would probably like to be getting from me more regularly regularly and you know i i do have some guilt about this because i know i can get a little self involved with all my hobbies and interests but i think it's important to show show them this part of me as well so I'm trying to keep a balance but back to my point, it's just the way life is. You know, there are trade-offs for every choice we make. And the choice to have children is a lifelong choice. And while it's been the most challenging effort in my life, it's also been the most rewarding. A priest I was treating a few years back was telling me about how he had a bit uh, that he was writing for a sermon and that he was going to give. And he said that people are always complaining to him about how full their plates are. And he couldn't help but think to himself then why don't you eat it? I imagine that uh, priests have to keep a certain amount of humor about things. And I, I think of this this uh, bit often. We are fortunate to have these full plates, and whether I like to admit it or not, I've chosen to keep my plate full. And, and this conversation yesterday somehow woke up in, in me, uh, woke me up to my, my present life, and I'm going to lean into it a little bit more and enjoy it and uh, eat what's on my plate. If you're new to the show, thanks for checking it out. 
Highway to Health is an exploration of how we can improve our state of wellness as individuals and communities and more deeply understand all the many relationships we have consciously or unconsciously on this planet. Having worked in integrative health for more than 20 years, it is always in my awareness that how we feel is in direct relationship to where we live, what we eat, and how we spend our time. And while it's important to have healthy rituals, there are also forces at play that sometimes go beneath our radar. And this conversation with Laley and Lauren from Apparatus Today is about the work in governance and policy space space that definitely goes below our radar. Uh, uh, with, the, with their um, work on the campaign to legalize recreational use of marijuana and what it means to the health and wellness and economies of our communities. And I'll have them up in just a minute. But first, I want to say thank you to listeners who have become supporters of the podcast. Your dollars are helping us build community support for this project and all the projects we touch through our conversations here on Highway to Health. If you haven't donated yet, don't worry. We don't know who you, who you are yet, but we will certainly know when you do donate. And I guarantee I will thank you personally for your contribution. You can become a contributor for as, for as little as $1 a month. It just takes a minute. Go over to patreon.com forward slash highway to health and sign up to be a supporter right now. We'll wait for you. Or you can just press pause. Go ahead. We'll wait for you. You can also contribute by sharing an episode of the podcast. We have a diverse catalog now of 40 guests with a wide range of topics from personal physical health to mental health to governance and community policy and environmental protection. Let us know if there's anything that you would like us to cover here on the podcast. And if there's a guest you have in mind, you can email me directly at jeremy at highwoodhealthpodcast.com. The legalization of cannabis subject is one I've touched on already here from a health healthcare perspective a few months back in my conversation with Abby Epstein and Ricky Lake and their film, Weed the People, which, uh, by the way, is now available on Netflix for anyone interested in checking it out. Since that conversation, I wanted to learn more about this subject, especially since I have a teenager and we are in a pretty regular conversation about the use of marijuana. You can listen to us discuss uh, this, my son and I, uh, in our February 13th episode of Highway to Health, where we talk about teen stuff. Uh, today, I go a bit deeper by exploring the policy conversation and what it means to legalize marijuana for recreational sale and use. My guests for the show are, are from Apparatus, a public affairs group focused on government relations, research and development, and strategic problem solving. While they've worked on projects for self-driving cars, land stewardship, and political campaigns, they've most recently come to the forefront with their work on responsible marijuana regulation in Minnesota. I got a chance to hear... Leili Fatahi uh, speak at the Canada.mn event back on 420, hosted by my buddy Tico O'Reilly and Zach, Zachary Robbins. Uh, and I was very impressed with what she had to say, and I reached out to her right away about recording an episode for Highway to Health, and she agreed. Uh, we are joined in this conversation by Laley's business, business partner, Laura Mon Ginsberg. Having worked on political campaigns for the mayor of Minneapolis and Senate races, they now have a really great view of the playing field and everyone who is involved and affected by policy change. And with Laura's background in marketing, they seem to have a real sense of how to get information from communities and how to deliver a message. Here's my conversation with Laylee and Laura. I feel like there's so many things that we can kind of give consideration to 
that how we build health into our lives that we're not doing very well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you guys are doing exactly that work. It's sort of invisible. It's like the invisible part of what happens in, in, in health, you know, mm-hmm. in, in wellness in, in the world. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and our work is all very interdisciplinary, and it often comes back to things that are systems-oriented, like health. That's actually... Before Laura and I started Apparatus, I was an academic at the U, and my work was focused on, I worked at the intersection of law, public policy, and bioethics, so a lot of my work has been, yeah, at the Humphrey School and then the Center for Bioethics, my work focused a lot on emerging technologies and the implications that they had for both biomedical research, but also in the different social impacts, ethical impacts that it has, shift in kind of balance of power between patients, physicians, researcher, um, research subject. But it's also interdisciplinary, and we find that kind of stuff always seeping into a lot of the work we do. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's why we founded as a general benefit corporation as well. That I mean, we think that really is essential to the work that we're doing and and the work that we see needing to be done yeah is that you know we're always thinking that way and so it's really a core element of how we approach any work that we do at the capitol anywhere else so yeah it's it's a big driver for us and i think it's really evident in the projects that we've taken on yeah so, is it Laley? Is that Laley? Yep, like ukulele without the ukulele. Gotcha, okay. How long? How long have you been in, in Minneapolis for? For twelve years. So okay. I came here for law school. You came here for law school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it? Was there any reason this law school over other places? I mean, yes, because this law school had a faculty member. So I between. Uh, undergrad and when I came here I was in DC and I worked for a nonprofit on um, a project that looked at the implications of nanotechnology for especially for developing countries for the world's poor kind of the the um, potential opportunities it could present but also where there could be economic displacements that would be felt hardest by those those who are you know resource constrained yeah. and there was a faculty member at the University of Minnesota Law School that was doing a lot of research around the law and nanomedicine but also genetics and genomics and um, ultimately you know synthetic biology and things like that so I came to go to law school, but also kind of continue the research work that I was doing on that. I knew I would either want to go into nonprofit or into academia. And uh, yeah, when I graduated, I turned around and started working with her in a faculty capacity. How, how do you define nanomedicine? Uh, good question. And over time, we figured out that uh, actually definitionally, it's much more meaningless than we thought <laughs> it would be. Um, usually, nano is defined as between this range of a one to a hundred nanometers, but it's in the range where um, you start seeing what are referred to as qu- quantum phenomena. So it's in that range where matter begins to take on its physical and chemical um, attributes. And so things oh, that at the macro scale exhibit a particular type of behavior at the nano scale show a very different type of behavior. And so nanomedicine exploits that phenomena 
that happens at that smaller scale. So things that aren't combustible become combustible. Things that don't conduct electricity suddenly do. And in medicine especially, it becomes particularly meaningless because you're already dealing with everything at kind of the molecular scale. You know, insulin is by its definition, you know, a nanoparticle. Um, uh, Aspirin operates at... You know, that, right, that sort right. of. So in medicine, we figured out it actually is not particularly meaningful and uh, especially legally. But it's actually one of the things that ultimately resulted in me not wanting to stay in academia. You know, I, my funding came from uh, NIH and NSF and things like that. And so sometimes we would find out something like, well, from a legal or regulatory standpoint, calling something nano in the medicine realm isn't particularly meaningful. And it was like, well, don't say that. We'll lose our funding. <laughs> yeah. It was like, really? So are we kind of just searching for problems and kind of just repeating the same things over and right. over? You know, in um, science and technology and medicine and academia, there's a real emphasis on translational work. Um, you know, taking things that you're doing in the lab and coming up with real-world applied applications and, and translating into having impacts. For those of us that do work on social impacts, on ethical things, on governance, there's no emphasis on that same translational stuff. So mm-hmm. I was spending so much time working on governance approaches to, you know, everything from nanomedicine, but also a lot of the work Laura and I have done in recent years is focused on, like, transportation. I did a lot of stuff on on autonomous vehicles and self-driving cars yeah, and how do we govern that. that. Um, but in academia, it was like you just keep publishing the same thing over and over again for the same... Without being able to see much for outcome. 45 people, and there's no outcome. We're not right. trained in how do you actually do that. So when I decided to leave, actually, and someone said... Have you considered going into government relations? I actually went home and Googled it. I mean, I was a lawyer who had spent the last decade working on governance structures and policy, and I didn't really know what that meant to go into government relations and what lobbying meant. So, yeah, yeah, there's a real uh, gap there. Well, that's interesting. Did did you grow up here, Laura? I did, yes, in Chanhassen. Okay. And did, did, what, what did you do? If, you were an English major like me. I was an English major <laughs> out of Carleton in Northfield. Um, I went to St. John's. Okay. <laughs> so we, same school system, basically. Yes. And I, I came up in corporate marketing. So I worked for pri- primarily in the technology space, um, both kind of you know emerging cloud-based technologies and kind of really old school, you know, hardcore manufacturing. Yeah warehouses, supply chains, the minutia of yeah, how yeah. things actually happen. And I worked in corporate marketing for 15 years at companies of various sizes, everything from a true startup to a $3 billion multinational software empire. And it was fun. I, you know, I enjoyed aspects of, you know, storytelling and and trying to figure out how to connect with people in a way that motivated them to do something. Get to bring your English major in. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, how do you make someone feel good about their decision and kind of see it the way you do? And that's absolutely part of being an English major and applying some of those fundamental principles of how do you, you know, have a thesis statement that you get others to agree with. And, um, and that's really, you know, part of what attracted me to this idea when Laylee approached me and said, I think we have a really good, Venn diagram of some skills that we each have and some skills that we both have that we could be, you know, we could put together and and amplify it. 
Um, and the storytelling is a lot of what we do. And, you know, Lily does a lot, almost all of our, our graphics work. Um, we collaborate on all aspects of, you know, kind of written and how do we tell this story or how do we make this accessible and understandable yeah, yeah. and, you know, coming out of academia and coming out of complex software systems, you know, we both have these, these, uh, these backgrounds and trying to, it's not dumbing it down, but it's making it actually something that someone can touch and feel and be like, I get this idea. Yeah. I now understand what this whole well, picture story, is. Story is so important for that. That's, that's the thing. that, and I, and I even feel that way now with doing the podcast. Is like, right. It's also message delivery. It's like I, I have this thing that I, I want people to understand, but how do you – what's the, what's the platform for that? Is it story? Is it visual? Is it auditory? Where do you hit that market and that kind of stuff? And we often try to do all of that at the we same time. We kind of do right. all of it. Yeah. It's really – we both have a really diverse range of interests. We like doing new things. We think of very few things as being off limits to our professional skill set and to the scope of our business. Yeah. Um, that's part of the nice thing about it. We often think of ourselves as being like a, a policy startup. Yeah. Um, it has left us open to doing experimental things that you do not see a government mm-hmm. affairs. Well, that's the cool thing doing. about like when I just just so when I heard you, so I heard you talk at the cannabis startup policy you know forum, and and then and then when I looked at your stuff, I was like, this is so cool. You you guys are doing like work with you know self driving cars and robotics, and I mean, it seems like you can kind of get into any and and then sort of health related things and transportation you can kind of do just about anything with it mm-hmm. and that was really appealing to me i i I do we both do we're both really just active people in our communities, whether that's getting involved on political campaigns as individuals, whether that's being in nonprofit you know volunteer boards or volunteer work, and I was doing a lot of that you know off school hours, so to speak, from my right. corporate marketing yeah. world and was finding more and more that the corporate marketing just didn't, I wasn't getting that same level of excitement. And so, you know, when Laylee approached me with this idea and I saw this opportunity to, you know, use those real professional skills and apply them in business settings, in government relations settings, in a way that felt good and natural, but also unleashed this space for us to be creative together um, it was a really exciting proposition. So, you know, that's where we were. And I think we both sometimes uh, reservedly, but still come from a place of yes. You know, sometimes we're like, yeah. oh, what is the risk here? You know, what, what, what are we taking on? Um, but I think we have been really curious and open to opportunities. And that has led us down some really exciting paths that, you know, I never could have seen myself working with self-driving cars. Um, or talking to the Mindat commissioner as he drove us from his home to the Capitol. Yeah. And yet, you know, you put it out in the universe and you make it happen. He's a really bad driver, by the way. <laughs> He's very cautious and slow. I mean, look, the Mindat commissioner does not want to be pulled over True. on True. 94. True. How's my driving? Yes. So <laughs> probably for the best to err on the side of. That was a long drive, though. Yeah. What, what was your first project? Well, the was, robotic was it the the policy forum that we did for robotics alley? Well, drive together was what. So we had this idea for, you know, thinking about self driving cars and their implications on an environmental platform, social, 
and just kind of business and, and city thriving. Yeah. And we went and met with then council member Jacob Fry and said, hey. And you guys worked for him or helped him. Well, at later. Some point, we ended right? up later. Yeah, later. Yeah. Um, and we said, hey, we, we think this is interesting and we think we should be the people that do this because why not? Yeah. And that kind of led us down a few different paths. Yeah, he actually ended up being a, and repeatedly has been, kind of a jolt of adrenaline in our personal career development because we showed up to talk to him about this kind of idea we had, and he immediately picked up the phone and started calling different department heads and saying, hey, we need to be thinking about what we're doing with zoning and self-driving cars, and I need you to meet... uh, with the, uh, these people who just came to talk to me. And so we went back home and we were like, oh my God, we need to like get a website up. We need to yeah. <laughs> well, put this into to... a proposal. And we got that all together in like 24 hours in response to that. Two weeks later, Laylee's driving and gets a call from, what was the rental car? The car to go. Oh, car to go. So she gets a call from car to go. So she separate, you know, as an individual was already a user of car to go. Yeah. And then we're doing this project. And she gets a call from Cardigo. And at first, I was in a Cardigo. And, so and I thought I had done thinks, something bad. Yeah, or, the, you know, or thinks there was a billing issue or you know, your credit card didn't get updated with your new debit, whatever information. And it happened to be the local general manager of Cardigo that through. So, I mean, this, you know, again, just like putting ourselves out there and being this place of like, yeah, let's take the meeting. We don't need to have a, a perfect idea. We don't need to have a fully formed concept of what this project is going to be to have a conversation right. and tell people and put it out there that we want to work on it. Yeah. And that's And that's ultimately, us. I think, a lot of what led us down this path to this legalization campaign as well. You know, one of the things we've learned over the last three years is a lot of times you have this inclination to see a space where there's a need for something or it's not being done and you think, you know, either no one's doing it for some reason or you think somebody else that's more prepared than you or more qualified than you is surely going to do it. And the answer is no. People are waiting for someone to do it. And so when we launched... Minnesotans for Responsible Marijuana Regulation, that was immediately the response we started getting from people was like, oh, finally, somebody mm-hmm. has started, you know, a campaign of this nature that is needed to, you know, kind of complement the other work that is happening and yeah. bring us into this this uh, sort of uh, more targeted trajectory towards getting legislation yeah. done. And, and, and when, you, when you say responsible, so I think what a lot of people are immediately going to think is just about its its use, how it's you know it, the intake of it or whatever, but it really it's it's so much broader than that mm-hmm. you know in terms of how it you know how legalizing something changes an entire you know community and an economy that kind of stuff. So I, I wanted I, I think a lot of people just don't have any clue about this. Yeah, I mean we certainly were not responsible when we decided to prohibit cannabis, and we were not responsible at all in our approaches to. That prohibition. Have, have you seen the, the Netflix documentary that's, that just came out? I saw a bit of it. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing it I this weekend. I saw half of it, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it gets into mm-hmm. that, you know, as a musician, I think it's interesting because of, I mean, cannabis is around the music scene, and they talk mm-hmm. about how it became so, you know, in, ingrained in the, in the jazz scene at the time in the, you know, 30s to 50s. 
and that you know a lot of a, a lot of stuff. I mean, maybe even twenties. Um, a lot of stuff that was happening around cannabis at that point was was in policy and 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 with the way the government was getting involved, really had to do with they didn't like the fact that that white people would be exposed to cannabis and that well, not, not, it wasn't really about cannabis. It was about that white people and 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 black people at the time would be mixing in these clubs basically, and that cannabis would probably like create this elixir that would uh, would allow some sort of like sexual stuff to happen that was really okay. the all most of the policy was Reefer about madness. that reefer madness exactly so yeah yeah i mean when we think about responsible there are so many things that are tied up in that word for us and thinking about you know certainly doing right by what prohibition has disproportionately done yeah. to communities of color so you know how do we responsibly to the degree we can ameliorate what has been done and responsibly move forward from there. Yesterday I was at a lunch hosted by the North Metro Chamber of Commerce and they were talking about workforce. And how do you deal with that? You know, how do you have how do you have policies? How do you have testing? How do you think about the implications of, you know, are there certain jobs where you need to worry about it, but are there certain jobs where you don't? Yeah. And you're just you're just carrying on with these fragments of prohibition because you're scared yeah. and there's actually no implication of somebody doing their job well. This yeah. is one of the hallmarks of the approach that Laura and I take to all of our works and it's really, I mean, one of the hallmarks of the apparatus approach to everything um, and a lot of it comes from the research work that I did prior to, yeah. to starting apparatus is is ours is an approach of anticipatory governance um you know in most instances policy is playing catch-up and policy if it's not playing catch-up to something um we are sort of moving ahead with policy and then dealing with the implications later right um we'll sort of try to predict what the impacts of a policy will be, but we sort of move ahead with it without really thinking, um, instead of approaching it in, in what we refer to as this anticipatory approach where you begin with actually saying, okay, what is the future we would like to see? What does that, I mean, kind of ideal future look like in terms of the opportunities people have, in terms of the balance of power in terms of what the, I don't know, health of our environment is, whatever it may be, kind of at that social value level. And then based on that, you make your decision of how are we going to move forward with a set of policies. Um, When you approach things this way, you kind of naturally come up with policies that allow you, if you're not on, bay, on, on track to, to meeting those, those outcomes, to kind of modulate until you get there. And the problem with, with not doing that is oftentimes you end up locking in a bad trajectory, and then it becomes almost impossible to undo. And we've seen this in every policy area, but we have concerns with it in the cannabis space, you know? So we legalize it, and we don't think upstream of... Um, you know, who's going to be getting the jobs, who's going to be benefiting from it economically 
is just going to reperpetuate exactly the way, you know, economic benefits and losses exactly. have always been distributed, right? The rich will get richer, the poor will not benefit from it right. at all. Um, you need to be deliberate in, in doing that. So we see that as being an aspect of responsibility. Um, you know, if you you want people to feel that the product is safe, you need to engage them in the conversation upstream. I mean, you cannot be surprised when people uh, are opposed to something because they felt like they were left out of the conversation. And people yeah. do have legitimate concerns about yeah. this. They've yeah. been, I mean, raised with both valid information and a lot of misinformation. And it's not fair to just, you know, pretend like it's because they're stupid. Right. They're not. Right. Um, and it's interesting with like the, the anticipatory part, like with your background, Laura, in marketing, mm-hmm. that's all, it's all the same work anticipatory wise. And in fact, sometimes more research goes on into that right. just to figure out how to get the dollar than, than the research that goes on into like, you know, protecting or promoting public health. Right. But that's also where you can fall victim to building your own fable of what you are going to project is what, yeah, oh yeah, of, of sure. what those challenges are. Yeah. You know, when I used to do persona mapping, or what's the buyer's journey of buying this software? And you know, you can, if you are just sitting in a box doing it, and you are not actually out there hearing from, listening to, and actively taking that in and modifying from there, you, you know, you're not going to be any any better off than if you had just gone ahead and, and, you know, done what you wanted in the first place. So, you know, that's another piece of this and, and particular to this campaign, as Lily was saying, people have concerns that need to be addressed. Some of it comes from, you know, decades of misinformation that's been perpetuated out yeah. there. Some of it comes from a lack of information altogether. Um, some of it comes from personal instances that may or may not actually correlate. Uh, But whatever the case may be, we believe that it's fundamental to the success of this campaign that it truly is. That's why Minnesotans is the first word. We are really committed to getting out beyond the metro, even though a lot of the work is happening at the Capitol. The Capitol is the people's house that represents everybody in this state, and we want to go out. So that's a big piece of what we're working on now is as the session winds down and the summer is upon us, um, how are we going to get out and, and listen to people and and show them that there is this really concerted effort to hear from them and understand and interact and, and offer information, but not bulldoze people, not you know force them to see things exactly the way we do, yeah. but not also you know, project what we think their concerns are or should be or how they should be mollified. So, you know, we're, we're really, we're really dedicated to that being a cornerstone of this campaign. And we're super excited to kind of take the show on the road and, and hear what people want to know. Yeah. We actually largely modeled the campaign on the Minnesotans United for All Families campaign. That's when we decided to launch this and we were thinking, what do we want it to look like? Um, we really thought about that campaign, and it's, you know, so much of it is destigmatization and the approach that campaign took to really being a conversation-based campaign, getting people to talk to their affinity groups, to have conversations with their neighbors, with their family members, and kind of equipping them with the facts and the, the talking points, but really letting them use their own words, tell their own stories to their communities, 
um, and and letting that be the basis for the work. And we know that that's that's something that fundamentally works better when you are trying to get people to really engage with an issue um, from that kind of ethical, social level. So we actually we went. Um, Took a little to field the, trip. <laughs> yeah, we took a little field trip day one to the Minnesota Historical Society. The Minnesotans United campaign put all of their organizing documents, everything, into these big boxes that they have on file there. Hmm. And so we just sat one afternoon and we went through all of the boxes and we looked at you know the campaign plan they had put they together. Everything. They kept everything oh, and they kept amazing. it as a resource. Yeah. Specifically for, you know, this kind of instance where you have people like us that are borrowing some of those practices and, and seeing if it works. And it's, it's, it's a very useful and, and we think a very responsible approach to um, this kind of campaign. It's not, you know, a marketing ploy. Right. And when you're looking at things from an ethical perspective, you're looking for some kind of formula, and also seeing where there were where there were problems with something. That's it seems like a great place mm-hmm. to start. And understanding that you know when it is something ethical, it's going to be so multifaceted with what connects with people, yeah. you know, different experiences, backgrounds, communities, etc. Everybody's going to come with a little bit of a different flavor. So it's also you know back to some of those marketing and communications fundamentals of offering up different paths of you know, getting on board with it. It's going to appeal to different people for different reasons. Just as we saw in the marriage equality campaign, different people came at it with, with different values and that's, that's all good. Yeah. So. And th- when I was doing my work in health tech, one of the, one of the questions that came up that actually probably led to the podcast was that in intake, you know, if, if for one thing, I mean, we shouldn't be filling out these forms over and over and over again. I mean, there are certain aspects of who we are that aren't going to change that much, <laughs> but there are, but the one thing that we kept stumbling into was was our belief systems on how we stay well or how we become better or how we heal or something and and this gets into the i mean it's 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 not a question of ethics per se but but it does get into all these all this information that's been sort of pressed on us in different ways for a long time, and there's no one right way to do things, and we know from from like placebo effect that it's about half effective. So how do you deal with something like that? You know, when it gets, when it gets to this, to the psychology and, that, and as with ethics, right, it just gets so complicated because of, because of this stuff. And so what, what do you guys, how do you guys deal with that when you're putting together like a, a campaign around something like, like cannabis? Once you get these sort of varying points of view, how do you start to work with that? Mm-hmm. People are really hungry to talk about this issue. That's part of so the hashtag that we use for the campaign, the URL and everything is MN is ready. And that MN is ready means both MN is ready for, I mean, we think MN is ready for legalization, but more broadly, you know, Minnesotans are ready to be having this conversation about legalization. And that's what we're finding is even, you know, Minnesotans who feel predisposed to opposing legalization, who have concerns about it, by and large, are really open to having meaningful conversations about the different implications of it. Um, So, you know, uh, a lot of it has been our approach has been, you know, kind of developing a field program where we're getting people to go talk to their church or talk to their book club or um, members of their local political organizing unit to kind of get them to talk about this. We're working increasingly with legislators from all sides of the aisle on just, you know, 
have a town hall on the issue. Yeah. Have a town hall. Bring someone who's anti-legalization and someone who's pro, you know, and... And, and people don't know what they think about it sometimes until they really get engaged or get challenged mm-hmm. on the, their belief system, too. People also really have misconceptions as to who it is that supports legalization. And, and you know, it's... Right. Um, a, they have kind of a cartoonish image of, of uh, you know, who the marijuana user is, or even not user. I mean, there are plenty of people who aren't themselves cannabis users who are supportive of legalization. Right. And that's been another real benefit of this campaign has been getting people to see, you know, who's standing behind this. It includes, you know, physicians and lawyers and teachers and um, mothers, it's it's yeah. all kinds of people. Many of whom say, "I don't use it. I don't want my kid to use it." But you know, prohibition hasn't done anything to help that. Yeah. Let's I, try a different approach. That's that's the kind of stuff. And then there's certain you know truths that when people find out, really echoes with them and makes them open to the conversation. One is talking with them about who it is that is funding anti-legalization efforts. It is private prisons, it is police unions, it is the alcohol industry, and it is the pharmaceutical industry. They are spending millions of dollars on stopping legalization. And when people hear that, especially now with pharmaceuticals, I mean, it stops them in their tracks because they're also seeing this information about, you know, uh, in states that have legalized how much lower the rates of of opioid addiction are and opioid deaths, you know, that creates an opportunity for them to kind of rethink who do they trust, who do they not trust. Another is when you get people to really reflect, you know, ask them the question, do you think the war on drugs has been a success? Do you think the prohibition of cannabis has produced the outcomes that it promised to produce? Yeah. Um, And when they think about it, you know, I often tell people, like, do you have a a high school or college-age kid? Go ask them. Is it easier to get alcohol? Or to get weed. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when they ask that question, all of a sudden they're like, oh, okay, well, so <laughs> clearly, you know, this isn't stopping anyone from getting right. it. Right. And, and, if, and, if, and if they can get alcohol just as easily, is that any better? I mean, that's another... I have a, a almost 16-year-old, so this conversation is very popular in our well, house. Well, at least you know the alcohol <laughs> probably wasn't, you know, made in somebody's basement and grown with, you know, the wheat wasn't, it wasn't true, a pesticide true. that you didn't know what was on it. I mean, right. this is part of the regulation exactly. piece of the whole thing yeah. is what do you open up in terms of making it safer than it is now when everybody's buying it illegally? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a big, that's a big piece of it too. You know, back to this idea of asking your kid, you know, what's safer then think about, well, what do you want your kid, you know, were they to get their hands on something? And they're going to. I mean, the, the, the vast majority are going to. So, again, where are we getting it from? Mm-hmm. Which is a question that would be answered if it yeah. was regulated and you went to a dispensary that, you know, had to pass licensure tests and regulations and had yeah. to, you know, the Department of Health had to come and know where everything was and if it was clean and you had to account for your whole supply chain and... You had Minnesota growers that were making it and delivering it, and they had to also adhere to certain requirements. I mean, that's that doesn't exist in yeah. the black market. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, watching that that Netflix documentary it was interesting to go through 
and and see the information that was fed through marketing for such a long period of time and even how it affected my belief system even though I used it as a musician you know like it's like one of those things that it's it, like and or becoming a parent and thinking like well is what's what problem do I have with it when you're when you're like a year ago our son asked my wife you know when did you smoke weed in high school mom she's like well <laughs> You know, see, then you have to be, and in a way, you have to be honest, but you also have to sort of give your opinion up about its use. I think this this is the way we've addressed it, anyways. But but I do think that there's there's when I see the evidence, you know, for you know, I mean, I, I I treat a lot of people in my practice who have you know chronic pain, and the vast majority of them come from families of abuse, mostly alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. And so you have to kind of, you know, the, the, the arguments that I see going on right now for, for cannabis use, the, the, the one that seems to keep pop, popping up is that psychosis can be sort of a, a, a trait that's, that's related to right. it. But we also, I mean, drinking causes psychosis on the spot. I mean, it's like one of those things that are sort of like, this is your, this is your argument. And we also know that a, a lot of people who have mental health issues end up using cannabis as a way of stabilizing things. So, and you know, you guys can probably tell me a lot more about Yeah, this, precisely. But. I mean, there is nothing that suggests that cannabis use produces any kind of, you know, psychiatric or psychological pathology if it isn't already there. Like anything, you know, if, if you already have an underlying condition, it can certainly be an aggravating you know, uh, factor the same way exactly as you said as alcohol or as stress or as, you know... Caffeine. Caffeine, anything like that. (laughs) Um, Again, if you uh, legalize and you're eliminating that stigma, I got to tell you, a lot of people are probably going to feel much more comfortable talking with their physician about the fact that they are using cannabis than in a world where um, it's illegal and people lie to their doctor because they feel embarrassed for whatever reason. Physicians will probably be, you know... uh, The other thing is, I mean, we can't do any biomedical testing on the stuff now, so hopefully once, you know, we have federal regulations that allow for there to actually be uh, uh, research done, uh, physicians will be much better able to to provide data-based advice to to their patients on whether use is appropriate for them given whatever their the the condition is you know i mean it's the same thing like if you have diabetes you shouldn't have sugar we don't ban sugar we do research so that we know right that sugar isn't good for you and your physician tells you not to use it yeah and it becomes part of the medical journals and i've you know because i did this conversation with uh abby epstein about the weed the people movie I, I I knew nothing about the patent that was that was regulating research, and then a couple of weeks after that, I went to this pain management conference here in Minneapolis, and this this uh, doctor from Brooklyn is part of this think tank in Brooklyn is doing all this research. They're doing research on it already; they just can't publish anything. So I right. went and talked to him afterwards, and I was like, you know, you know, just trying to figure out what they know about how they can start getting information out, and they're like, hands are tied still right now at, at this moment when. We, we have all the information, basically, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, that's definitely an issue right now mm-hmm. from, a, from a federal level, which is, which is the other part that goes back to all the stuff that they're talking about in this documentary that all, all relates back to this prohibition period, and really a lot of it has to do with race issues. Mm-hmm. The other thing with the link between cannabis and mental health that for us has been a real source of frustration, and for me... I've been really frustrated because, like, for example, Boynton Health Services put out, um, they do this 
annual survey of student health, which is a great thing that they do. But this year they put this thing out and they really editorialized uh, in the news that, that the health survey showed that students that were using cannabis were, they had worse GPAs. GPAs which, first of all, it meant, like, their grades went down from, like, an A- minus to a B plus, which, I mean, I went to college in this country. I'm not going to argue that smoking weed is going to help your grades. Right. Um, But the the claims that they were making when you actually went and you looked at what the survey indicated really was troubling to me because they were using cannabis really as a scapegoat for other factors well within – you know, the control of policymakers or, or the higher education system that were really contributing to students having lower grades. So, I mean, basically what it indicated was the students who were using the most cannabis were the ones, you know, it was often related to having untreated uh, mental health issues. So students with depression or anxiety and they didn't have access to medical interventions yeah. for these mental... Well, obviously, people use cannabis and alcohol to self-medicate. Um, it was tied to things like housing insecurity, to you know, transportation insecurity. So you know, if you're pointing and saying, oh, well, weed is causing people to have lower grades, or the one that really ki- killed me was... Uh, uh, former health commissioner Ed Ellinger, and he even came to the Senate to testify on this, that uh, women uh, college students that smoke cannabis are at a higher risk of sexual assault. And it's like, well, are you looking to see, are they also drinking alcohol? I mean, the, just the fact that they're women makes them right. more prone to... Yeah. I mean, exactly. it's just... So really kind of cherry-picking these things to make cannabis is is not the cause of it but it gets back to this notion of just how much is wound up in legalization right and so you know thinking about different ways that people are coming to agree with legalization or are you know thinking about some of these systemic issues we have like university of minnesota students that might be food insecure um, or not have a place to stay every night or you know have mental health issues that they can't afford to get help for. Um, it's the same thing that we do see when we see people finding different ways of understanding that, you know, as Lily was saying, that it's not this cartoon archetype of somebody who just enjoys, you know, recreationally the, smoking the dude. weed. Yeah, that there are really serious components of that, you know, that legalization can address, um, whether that be on the decriminalization and um, economic opportunities. I mean, there's a whole host of, of, of opportunity that's wound up in it. Yeah. And so when we can help people unravel that it's not just that, it's not just this desire to smoke weed. Plus, again, right. it just shows that prohibition isn't working. I mean, if you're reporting that students are using more cannabis than ever and their grades are declining because of it, it's illegal right now, and that cannabis use is up. So, so yeah. the issue, I mean, you know, the issue is one of, of the university. I mean, if, if the university doesn't want people using cannabis because it's bad for their health or their grades or whatever, 
prohibition is not fixing that problem. So maybe instead of, you know, complaining about the fact that like, oh, if we're going to legalize it, it's going to make the problem worse, start thinking about what can you do from an education and student outreach standpoint to discourage the irresponsible use of cannabis the same way we do for alcohol, right? I mean, I don't see university administrators calling for the prohibition of alcohol. It's their responsibility to engage with students about what responsible drinking looks like and um, like how, you know, if somebody is too drunk to consent... That's a problem, right? It's- you know, that's interesting thinking about this. Um, so this chamber event I was at yesterday, they had someone from Colorado who was in, and he's an employment lawyer. So he, you know, he was specifically talking about workforce and kind of, you know, as an employer, what do you need to do with your policies and whatnot? And he was talking about how the question was, you know, how has it sort of normalized cannabis use in Colorado since it's been legalized? And just to this point, he was talking about how it has opened up the ability to talk clearly about risk. So they have commercials that say, you know, put your edibles away that look like candy to a kid. You know, lock up your, your marijuana when you're not home so that your teenagers don't get into it. You know, talk to your... Um, you know, your young adult in your life who's coming of age legally about, you know, what world is opening to them and, and where you want to help them understand, you know, potential risks and, and use and whatnot. It's a mismatch between the problem and the tools, right? I mean, we're using law enforcement and like the criminal legal system uh, as a solution for something where you know the problems need to be dealt with at either a at a at a health level at an education level or just at a you know community family level right. there's nothing else that we say you know uh we think it's it's bad so instead of educating you on it or or having your physician advise you for or against it or having you know your parents or your church or your school educate you on it we're just going to call it really dangerous and have the cops take care of it which, which, don't want which, to do which it doesn't either. which doesn't work in the, so for, for in my family so far <laughs> my my wife's take is it's illegal don't do it if you if, if you if, if you get caught with it it's going to be on your record and that's a problem my my version of that <laughs> is a little more of you know, it, during the, I mean, this is just me knowing, knowing neuropsych a little bit more, is that during the development of the brain, during these teenage years, it's, it, the, there's a lot of things that become habituated in the brain, and it's a terrible time to, to introduce something chemical into the brain. So and I, I would hold the same as if, if you don't have to do antidepressants, if you don't have to do other medications during those developmental years, you're way better off because there's 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 your body has this you know ability to sort of self-regulate and it's going to do a lot of that on its own. But if you don't give it the opportunity, it's not, and it's going to learn that it doesn't have to. So, you know, I think a lot of people use alcohol and cannabis for you know to to self-medicate or to to manage stress or for all sorts of things, anxiety. But I don't think if if you can avoid doing that and get yourself into other good habits. Then the use of it later after the after the brain is developed is not as is not as bad for it, and you know a lot of a, a lot of science is there to support that. Even the use of, of psychedelics are, are being you know right. saying that later in life would actually be better. Mm-hmm. Like when we when we do have struggles and anxieties and stressors mm-hmm. that come up when we get divorced, <laughs> might be a way of sort of reprogramming if, if we're not if we're not in the habitual use of those kinds of things. So that is that is the case for sort of the, the medicinal use of of these kinds of things. Well, and especially compared to alcohol, you know. 
know? I mean, yeah. why, why are we using prohibition and, and law enforcement as a mechanism of stopping responsible adults from making a choice to use a substance that is objectively safer than alcohol? Yeah. And I often get people who are like, well, is it? Do we know that it's safer? Yes. We do. Yes, we do. It's just, it's not up for debate. And, and most pharmaceuticals. Yes. We have met a lot of people in this work already that talk about their opiate experience of prescribed, mm. legal, script from a doctor, you should take this. And, you know, thinking about chronic pain in particular. Yeah. We all know there's an epidemic going on. We know that pharmaceutical companies have been, frankly, pernicious in going after people and getting them to use these drugs. And we've met a lot of people that felt trapped in their prescribed legal, quote-unquote, safe opiates and used cannabis as a way to crawl out of it because they felt that they were going to be just completely handcuffed yeah. numb and incapable of really living a life on these extremely heavy drugs, not to mention what it introduced by just being in their homes yeah. as far as kids getting their hands on that um, and potentially, you know, using, selling, et cetera. Yeah, nobody really talks about that either. It's extremely scary. You know, when, when you hear these legislators worry, you know, they, they trot out these nightmares that a toddler is going to eat a, a gummy and of course nobody wants that to happen but right. what about all this oxycotton that's sitting in you know cabinets at home and i think one thing that might be of um interest to some of your listeners that we often uh don't see a lot of coverage on so minnesota has a medical cannabis program it's not a particularly good medical yeah. cannabis program it's actually one of the most restrictive one of the most expensive yeah. Uh, programs and legalization is not a substitute for improving and expanding the medical cannabis program and unfortunately in uh, some states people have assumed that if you legalize cannabis I mean it certainly has some benefits for the medical cannabis program in terms of you know lowering price and things like that but um, it's, it's not a substitute for it because people who are using cannabis medicinally, uh, you know, I mean, there are different strains, there are certain different potencies. Um, and so, you know, ensuring THC, that people... CBD combinations. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so, different formats you know, it's, of it's important it. that uh, people who are supportive of legalization are also lending some strength to those who are working to expand uh, the medical cannabis program and that the work that we are doing to advance recreational uh, legalization doesn't undermine the yeah. work that we're doing. Because, yeah, I mean, you know, there's some really important social and economic implications for legalizing, but there's also, I mean, a lot of people whose lives are positively impacted by being able to have access and it's very expensive in this state so so getting we've tried i feel like we've probably talked about all these things but just in terms of your campaign for this right now what are the sort of major tenants that you guys are trying to make sure get get discussed and are, are there any problems at this point that you guys see in terms of in terms of this getting through 
So what's really important for us is that our policies for legalization um, address the, especially racial uh, disparities, the social disparities that have resulted from prohibition. And that includes, um, we would really like to see automatic expungement of records for those that have, you know, arrests and incarceration mm-hmm. for marijuana possession. Um, the ACLU did a study of Minnesota um, maybe like six years ago, and it was something like, uh, what was it, eight out of ten? Arrests for marijuana possession were black people, despite literally equal rates of usage between blacks and whites. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty common. The Washington Post just put out an article two weeks ago that said pretty much the exact same thing, that across the board, it is completely disproportionate, the number of people that are arrested and... Find. And that kind of thing has really systemic impacts for people because it makes it then impossible to, you know, get a job or a car loan or, you know, uh, get a, you know, fair rate on, on renting a home or whatever it may be it really becomes a burden. So that's important for us. And those, and those communities, I mean, this is, this is the thing that, I, that drives me crazy sometimes is that these communities which get devastated end up actually costing taxpayer dollars where the way that you know the the far right thinks about this is that those are the people who are who are costing taxpayer dollars because they're on welfare you know what i mean these families and these communities that have been affected by these mass rates of incarceration are actually the problem especially when it comes to they're they're not for violent crimes they're for things like this exactly mm-hmm. exactly it's also important for us to see that these communities that have been disproportionately devastated um, that they are given the opportunity uh, to have a substantial stake in the profits that come from legalization. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is this is really concerning to us that in some states we're seeing, you know, just wealthy white people setting up, you know, uh, dispensaries in, in, you know, posh areas of town. Yeah. Um, we're or really not doing posh areas of town and, and taking, town. Yeah. taking direct opportunity to mm-hmm. go back into those communities and be like, hey, now it's legal and we want to profit off you. Yeah. We've heard about a lot of, especially because, you know, because of the federal law, since banking and insurance and all of those things are problematic We've been hearing a lot about like predatory lending and things like that that have resulted in the cannabis because it's just unregulated. It's it's the Wild West. So Mm -hmm. we've been doing a lot of work with um, both state but especially with local government officials on making sure that when they're thinking through, you know, their zoning planning or or their approach to licensure that that this is something that's at the forefront of their mind. And we certainly know it's something that the mayors of Minneapolis and St. Paul both – um, are really committed to, and it's, it's driven a lot of their interest in in this topic. And, and how do you? I mean, uh, that, one of the things when I was listening to you talk uh, a couple of weeks ago was, so so with let's talk about the economics of these places. I mean, you also have people who have become reliant on the, the illegal sale of cannabis as as a way of as as a business, basically mm-hmm. too. So when you go into a, a community and a, a dispensary is set up. You know, if it's if it's not set up by by someone of, of color, then then what happens? Mm-hmm. Like, what what happens to that money? What happens to the people who actually started to rely on that? Because 
we, we know that that's a business. Let's not, let's not pretend that business doesn't exist, right? And that business is actually supporting families. Yeah, yeah. and that's where policies can make a difference. I think it's New Hampshire that is um, putting out some really interesting homegrown license options. You know, so what is that balance? Exactly as Lily was saying, you know, when you get to local governments thinking about what they're going to set up, there are opportunities where you can do just that. You know, you can support truly small business owners, um, but you have to do the work ahead of time. When it comes to, so these issues of economic inclusion, so our um, campaigns, we have a, a steering committee that has members from all different kinds of political persuasions, but it includes, you know, legislators and local government officials and people from business and all kinds of nonprofit organizations. And so we have a steering, uh, a, a working group of the steering committee that is focused on this issue of economic inclusion. And so part of what they're doing is they're actually like getting their hands dirty with doing the research and looking kind of across states that have legalized in municipalities to see what has worked in other states, what has been a failure. Um, but in addition with that, you know, there are, are some other groups that have been working in the legalization space or who have been working in kind of the the equitable economic development state, uh, uh, realm, and uh, we've been coordinating with them some on, on them actually taking some of the lead on developing what economic inclusion looks like. Our campaign operations team, we're, we're interesting in that we're, we're women-led, um, but, uh, you know, we are as many things sort of lean white. Our steering committee has quite a bit of diversity on it, and that's why we have the economic inclusion uh, working group. But, but, you know, we decided that Murmur's skill set is really doing the field and the legislative type work. And then um, given that there are organizations that are led by people of color from communities of color in this area, um, we're really kind of taking them, we're kind of deferring to them and their leadership on, on the, some of the economic development work and we're seeing you know, how we can, we can help uh, amplify their efforts and complement them and lend our resources wherever we can. And not bulldoze them. You know, let yeah. let yeah. leaders lead yeah. and learn with and from them and not swoop in as you know, we have the best ideas or we have to be at the helm or we have to come up with every last bit of it. I mean, that's really important to us that we do this thing collaboratively in a way that feels good and in a way that doesn't undermine other communities and organizations work in this space. Well, and people who come with a, you know, background and expertise and training in patient care, in medicine, in health care, um, those are people whose credentials um, really carry a lot of weight with policymakers and with members of the public. Um, certainly it should as you know, professionals and experts in these areas. We really welcome greater involvement and collaboration, um, both because we are working substantively on helping policymakers come up with good policies that will protect people's health um, but also because, you know, as we've been talking about, there is a lot of need for myth-busting and stigma-busting, and it's very helpful for members of the public and for legislators and other policymakers to hear from 
health professionals on on why it is that they support cannabis legalization, mm-hmm. and there are many reasons for that. So that's certainly um, one way that I think many of your listeners um, could get involved and be very helpful. Um, also, you know, as we've been talking about, this really is a people-powered campaign that is based on on engagement with one's uh, various different communities. Um, so we really are building kind of a large uh, coalition and a large uh, pool of volunteers that are helping to carry some of this messaging across the state to all different corners and to um, all kind of different types of areas. And so that's certainly we, we welcome people's involvement in whatever capacity they're interested, be it, you know, uh, helping us by providing testimony at the Capitol or hosting a house party or... Writing a check. Writing a check, <laughs> always. I mean, this is expensive work. We're really yeah. the only professionalized legalization campaign, um, and we're doing a lot to kind of lend that professionalization that we have the privilege of having to those who've been doing some of the fantastic grassroots work in the legalization mm-hmm. space, but it all costs money. Um, It costs money, A, to make sure we're not in violation of our very complex campaign finance laws, Mm -hmm. but also, I mean, you know, we're at the Capitol 60-plus hours a week lobbying on this. We have, you know, uh, one of the best field directors in the state of Minnesota orchestrating our, our field efforts. Um, yeah, so we, tell, tell me more, who, who's all involved in, in this effort as far as apparatus is concerned? So the, um, the operations team, so I'm managing the campaign. Laura is the communications director for the campaign. And then our field director is Kirsten Schuett, who's a very well-known, one of the, the best field organizers in the state. Uh, She was uh, recently the political director for the DFL party's coordinated campaign during the last election cycle, and so she's really one of the most experienced people Mm -hmm. with um, uh, getting, you know, kind of the message out and engaging with people across the state around important political issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, Josh Wilkins-Simon is our research director, and Josh is actually really interesting because he is kind of a a political campaign veteran, so he had done work for the Nolan campaign and for the Franken campaign, but then after that, he kind of stepped out of politics for a while, and he opened a glass shop, um, which is now what we call head shops, apparently. So he has a glass shop, Legacy Glassworks, in Uptown, and a shop in in Duluth, so when we uh, uh, decided to start this, he was like, this is great, it's at the intersection. (laughs) So he's been really wonderful in helping to um, advance some of our research work, and he's been doing a lot of work to get town halls Uh arranged with legislators Mm -hmm. across the state, which is going to be wonderful during the summer. Mm -hmm. And then we have this incredible steering committee that's been formed into these working groups and have been deep into research and networking and coalition building and, you know, really putting some velocity on this thing in, in ways and spaces that we don't necessarily have access to. So that's been really exciting to have their combined brain power in the room with us. And they've brought us so much information and ideas and people, 
Um, so that's been great. And, you know, we've seen people from all over the state have reached out and have wanted to help with this. And that was, that was really a good affirmation for us. So the steering committee is what, about like 30 people Mm -hmm. at this point. So it includes Minneapolis mayor, Jacob Fry, uh, former state representative, Joe Radinovich, who just ran for Congress Mm -hmm. in CD eight, former, uh, state Senator Brandon Peterson, who's a Republican that represented, uh, the Annandale area. Um, and was really one of the GOP leaders on same-sex marriage. Uh, and it's really great to now have his voice on, on this campaign. Yeah. Um, the president of the Minneapolis NAACP, Leslie Redmond, who is amazing, one of the most brilliant people I've met. She's sure. in law school, and she's working for Keith Ellison, and she's like 20-something years old and amazing. Um, we Sarah have Walker. Sarah Walker, who's the deputy director of corrections and is a very well-known criminal justice reform advocate in this state. She's oh, done nice. a lot of work over the years. Um, we have Ben Feist, who's the legislative director for the ACLU of Minnesota. Some social justice organizations like Jewish Community Action. Um, National Council of Jewish Women. We've got a bunch of lawyers of that lawyers. are very helpful with some of these, yes. you know, very detailed yes. policy pieces that need to fall into place. And then some business people, you know, uh, Tommy Beavis, who owns Pimento Kitchen, has been involved, and that's been really great as well. He's been helping us kind of uh, tap into the business community a bit more. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, a great, it's a really great, it's a great group. steering committee. And they they decided themselves that they wanted to meet monthly. I mean, they are a very committed group and it's, I mean, it's, it's really exceptional when you think about their schedules and, and other priorities that they have that that level of, you know, passion and dedication is a really good signal to us that Minnesota is ready to have this discussion and to bring people to the table from all over that want to do this thing and want to do it right. Everybody on our steering committee is gelled with you know whatever whatever they're coming to the table with whatever their background their affiliations their interest in the topic they are in agreement that you know we need to do this in a way that responsibly regulates for adult use in Minnesota and that feels really good yeah I'm not I can even think of organizations which I'll try to be in contact with but my my wife is also on the board of of some arts organizations here in minneapolis yes the arts community is a they are they and they are so dedicated to projects that they get involved in so i I love seeing that and and now that i'm you know in the mix of that too and then with all all the projects i have going on in health same with people in health i think people in health Mm -hmm. are going to be amazing advocates for this so i'll do my best to to make some connections i mean that's what's making this thing happen we you know this is a this is an effort that is really bootstrapped right now. It is people-powered, meaning every single donation is going right back into the work that we are doing. And, you know, it's really, it's been really affirming and validating to see people just come out and want to be part of this thing. The first fundraiser that we had was a lawyer's fundraiser. It was kind of, you know, low-hanging fruit for us since, like, we, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a lawyer. We have some connections. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we, you know, sent out the invitations and we show up. And first of all, I mean, a ton of the lawyers were not lawyers that we had directly invited. So, you mm-hmm. know, they were hearing about it from their colleagues. And then there was not a white shoe law firm that was not represented at this fundraiser. 
You know, it was all the big firms had somebody there, and they were excited to be there. And so, you know, the legal community has clearly decided that they are okay publicly standing behind the issue of legalization. Mm -hmm. Now we're beginning to work on actually getting the health community to feel that same sense of, you know, I mean, it's, it's, there's always this risk to being the first one, but now we're beginning to see kind of that uh, critical mass where, where uh, people feel comfortable as a profession coming forward and standing behind something, and we're hoping that, that the medical community and the, the health community will be the next one. I think the medical community will, for sure. Why, why do you think the, the legal community got so, so involved? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, there's money. Financial opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Money. I mean, you know, they all either want to be represented. I mean, okay, well, let me be less cynical about it because there are different <laughs> communities of legal professionals um, it is nothing new for those who are criminal defense attorneys and even those who are prosecutors mm-hmm. to support legalization. And that, it's because, that I can I mean, understand the for ones, sure. Yeah, they get tied and, up in it all day and they see you know, extremely inequitable things happening yeah. and they experience it firsthand through their clients. It's so, a huge cost to our legal system too. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. I, I you know, have a bunch of friends that work at Hennepin County, and they're like, if I didn't have to spend my day on this, and I could actually be going after people who are doing harmful, violent... Yeah. Or just productive work. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, that's a segment of the, the legal community that has led on this issue. Um, but, you know, business law, this is becoming a very marketable area. And frankly, and that's they want okay, to stake too. It out, yeah. 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 I mean, there's, there's room for everybody. And, you know, that does get back to the need to do things right and, you know, to think about the best ways to put them forward. But that's okay. It's okay to see economic opportunity. I mean... That's, that's why I'm curious. I'm just thinking yeah. about the... I, I know you guys are forward thinking all the time. So I just wanted to see, see what you guys thought about where that, what that direction is. Well, I mean, with, a big discussion is going to be where does the taxable revenue go? You know, right. that's going to be a huge fight yeah. is, you know, where do we put the, the money that, that the state will make? So, yes. you know, that's, there's opportunity all around and there's opportunity to screw it up. Yeah, any highly regulated area keeps lawyers amply employed. But, yeah. you know, I mean, it's everything from the business formation to, you know, are you franchising? Trademarks. What are the banking laws, yeah. trademarks? I mean, leases, yeah. you know, supply everything. chain contracts. Yeah. You know, there's a lot. Well, this is fascinating, you guys. Thank you for taking the time to do Thank this you. with Thank me. You. And how can people keep up with what you're up to and get involved? So our the website for the campaign is mnisready.org. That's also our handle on all social media, mnisready. And we encourage people when they're uh, tweeting or, or putting posts uh, on Instagram about uh, legalization that they use the hashtag mnisready. All right. Thanks so much, you guys. Thank, Thank you. you. you enjoyed that did you learn anything new I, I definitely did and realizing the scope of what we're dealing with here in terms of policy i can't help but become more involved i think we owe it to generations of people who have been wrongfully made criminals and served prison sentences by the prohibition policies that were put in place for political gain the profitability of privatized prison systems and the financial boom of big pharma They've used our policy system to turn the balance of power in their favor, and it's time that we make changes to protect the people in our communities. 
This is a complex issue and it takes dedication and effort on all of our parts to become involved. You can support the work Lely, Laura, and their colleagues are doing by going to apparatusmn.org. Uh, even if you don't live in Minnesota, their, their contributions on a national level will help set the stage for future states' policy decisions, uh, just as they have looked to Colorado and California for insights in their strategy and vision. If you like this topic and conversation and have anything you'd like to contribute, hit me up by email at jeremy at highwaytohealthpodcast.com. And if you like what you've been hearing here on the podcast and would like to become a supporter, it's very easy. You just go to patreon.com forward slash highwaytohealth to become a contributor. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Beyond the Paper Gown, hosted by Dr. Mitzi Krakover, helps people think critically about women's health issues, encouraging them to question and explore the complexities of healthcare systems, scientific advancements, and societal norms. There's a really cool episode that you should check out called Midday Menopause App, and that's about how AI and sensor technology can provide personalized interventions to manage menopause symptoms effectively. Check out Beyond the Paper Gown on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.